There is an extremely curious ritual that takes place every December 24 at the Magnuson household, and not just the Magnuson household, but many, many other households in the upper Midwest, particularly among those of Scandinavian heritage. No, I'm not referring to the fact that we meet for our big dinner, Christmas dinner on Christmas Eve, or even that we pass out most of our gifts to one another on Christmas Eve, something my wife still has not quite grown accustomed to from her own family ritual. I'm talking about what we eat. Now, some of you know full well what my family eats on Christmas Eve. We eat a piece of cod. Okay, now that's not odd. Cod is a fish. It's edible. You can do that. But it's cod that has been soaked in poison. Lie. Yes, I'm talking about loot fisk. Okay, if any of you are wondering, I'm talking about loot fisk. Okay, as long as I can remember, I grew up on Christmas Eve eating loot fisk. And there's a particular ritual that you have to go through when you eat loot fisk. No matter how gelatinous, no matter how tasteless, no matter how unappealing visually and in textually in how you eat it, the elder statesmen of the family are required to say, this is delicious, we've never had it better. It's, it's required, it's, it's part of the ritual. And everyone else is allowed to poke fun at it and, and, and talk about how terrible it is and why do we do this every year. But those, I'm graduating to that season of life. Now I am taking on the duty of saying, we have never had better lutefisk than we do this year. Now, I, we're going somewhere here. Thank you, Ben. Why did people of Scandinavian heritage initially eat lutefisk that had been prepared, soaked in poison, in lye, the stuff that's in, like, toilet cleaner? Yeah, that stuff. Why? Does anyone know? Because lye preserves. And in a day, think hundreds of years ago, when there were no refrigeration, there was no freezer, they would use cod and they would soak it, they would use lye to preserve it. Well, let me ask you something. Today, do we, do we need lye to preserve food? Of course we don't need lye to preserve food. So why do we eat it? Why do we still eat lutefisk? It's funny, if you actually were to go over to Scandinavia, they say, yeah, we've pretty much left that behind. But for whatever reason, we still have church picnics and Lutheran churches in Minnesota that still are holding on to tradition. Now, why do we do that? Well, it's because there's something else that has taken the original purpose of the tradition, of the ritual. There's a ritual that's there. It used to have a purpose. And now we're not sure what the purpose is, but we still want to be connected to what is past. Old rituals can very easily lose the purpose, what the French would call the, the raison d'etre, the reason for doing something, and we can just miss it. But we still hold on to the old form. Now again, where am I going with this? I'm not doing this to talk about lutefisk, believe it or not. I'm doing it because this morning in our reading in Mark, as we continue to go through this wonderful book together, we've seen Jesus provoking controversy. He provokes controversy at the beginning of Mark chapter 2 when he says to a man who has been let down from the roof and is paralyzed, he says to him, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees that are there say, no way. How does this man think he has authority to forgive sin? Only God does. 
and Jesus was intentionally provoking controversy. Yes, who do you think I am? And he proved it by saying, what's is easier? To say, your sins are forgiven, what can't be proven, verified, it's something internal, or to say, you're, you, you get up and walk. He said, I'll do what is, is harder to say, get up and walk, to prove that I have authority. He was provoking controversy. Last week, what did we understand? Jesus is going to come to people who are the castaways in society, the absolute scum of society, the tax collectors who were notorious thieves, who were on par with those who were the most vile and open sinners. And Jesus calls them to repentance. He brings them and attends a feast at a man who he had just called to salvation. And, they, and again, controversy. Why is he eating with these open sinners? And Jesus says, you don't understand. I came for sinners. I didn't come for the righteous. Physicians go visit sick people. I am for those who know they're sick. Jesus is intentionally provoking controversy. He, that is part of what he came to do. And here again, we read in Mark 2 in verse 18 that Jesus is going to do the same thing. And when he is, is bringing about, bringing to light this old ritual fasting that the disciples of the Pharisees and the disciples of John were regularly practicing, Jesus exposed that he came to bring a new reality. They were holding to old rituals. That was their entire practice of religion, of being right with God. And Jesus, through three parables he brings, so wonderfully and masterfully says, I didn't come for your old rituals. I came to bring out new realities. The title of the message this morning is Old Rituals, New Realities. Old Rituals, New Realities. And lest we think that our Christian life can't fall into the same ruts of old and wasted away ritual and miss entirely the new realities that Jesus came to bring in our lives, we're not going to understand how this passage might apply to our lives. We're going to start, first of all, with the old ritual that Jesus is in view of here, and then we're going to follow with three new realities. Now, if this means that we have four points this morning instead of our customary three, you're just going to have to deal with it, okay? If you're tied into three points, you can just pretend the first one is not a point at all. And we'll just stick with three. whatever you want to do, but even the best man-made rules are made to be broken. So let's start with, first of all, an old ritual. An old ritual. Start with me in verse 18. If you have your Bibles, let's again... Let's be textual, let's be grounded in the actual words that the Holy Spirit has preserved for us. And verse 18 says, the disciples of John and of the Pharisees used to fast. Now the idea here is not just that they used to in the past, it's that they were fasting. So the idea here is that they are fasting. The disciples of the Pharisees and the disciples of John are fasting, and they come and say unto him, to Jesus, why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but thy disciples fast not? They don't fast. They don't practice fasting. Now, why do you think the Pharisees might have been asking this question of Jesus here? What did Jesus, what was Jesus just doing before 
this passage? What was he doing in verse 13 through 17? Do you remember? Feasting. He was feasting, not fasting. And in fact, in all three gospel accounts in which this um, teaching is provided here about fasting is immediately after Jesus' feast with Matthew, with Levi. So it seems, it's, it's very, it seems plausible to me that they were doing it on one of the feast day, the fasting days, I should say, of the Pharisees. And so the Pharisees are fasting, and Jesus is feasting with sinners, and so people come to him and say, whoa, whoa, wait a second. The Pharisees and John's disciples are fasting. They are going without eating. They are abstaining from food. And you're feasting. Your disciples are eating. What gives? Now, let's stop for a moment here. What is fasting? Well, as I just said, fasting is simply the practice of not eating for a particular period of time. You could fast for one meal. You could fast for a day. You could fast for a few days. You could fast for a week. In, in Scripture, before we have heard of men fasting for 40 days, Jesus fasted. Moses fasted. Elijah fasted. Long periods of fast, but whether very short or very extended, it is the practice of not eating. Now, we need to understand something about the Pharisees. The Pharisees fasted. You can see this not only in scriptural evidence, but also just in evidence of the time. The Pharisees fasted two days a week. Who are the Pharisees? We said last week they were the, literally their naming separated ones. They considered themselves extremely holy, extremely devoted. They were extremely given to ritual and tradition and history. And they fasted two days. They fasted on Monday and they fasted on Thursday. Now, if you did this every week, this was your religious practice to go without food on Monday and Thursday. It would be very relevant to you when Jesus, this very popular teacher, was not fasting at all, other than we saw him fast in the wilderness when he was in temptation, but his practice was not to fast. And so he is asked, what gives? Well, why were the Pharisees fasting? This is really important. The Pharisees, of course, were the ones who were, who were very, very proclaimed to be very concerned about the Old Testament law. Do you know the Old Testament law, Mosaic law, a man's fasting only on one occasion all year? One occasion, no other occasion. The Day of Atonement. And scripture, you read this just recently in Leviticus, if you were following our Old Testament reading. The command from God is that on the Day of Atonement, the people of Israel were to afflict their souls. And the idea here seems to be you were, you were to fast. Nowhere in the Old Testament does God say you should fast twice a week. Nowhere in the Old Testament was fasting commanded to be a ritual kind of observance, observance for the Jewish people. So all, note already, the Pharisees are not holding to an Old Testament legal command. This was something that they did above and beyond, if you will. Now, when, was, when did people in the Old Testament fast? And I want to pause here, and I want to invite you to participate. When do you recall people in the Old Testament fasting? For what purposes? Mourning, good. They were grieving. And I would say, in most cases, many instances, it was connected to deep grief. It could be a national catastrophe. But I'll tell you one thing, that's a mourning, mourning connected more specifically in connection with what? 
sin. You see people all over the Old Testament uh, fasting and mourning over national sin or even perhaps individual sin. So mourning and fasting were going together as an expression of contrition and repentance to God. We have sinned. But also fasting was connected to something else. Does anyone know what else fasting was connected to in the Old Testament at times? One? Prayer. Hannah, you remember Hannah, fasted when she was praying for a child and God answered her prayer and she had Samuel. Daniel in the Old Testament fasts, has a specific time of approaching God in intense agony and he fasts. So fasting was an expression of deep desire, deep emotion, either emotion over my sin and repentance from it or emotion toward my prayer, seeking God for something. And so people express this in going without food. Their emotion of grief or emotion of intense desire in prayer simply put food from their minds. Okay, so that's the Old Testament idea behind fasting. We fast because we feel so deeply our sin or our need for God to do something on our behalf and we're going without food. What did the Pharisees turn that into? We fast twice a week. Why? Because they so earnestly felt their sin and their need for repentance? No way. Because they were so intensely desiring God to work on their behalf? No way. Why did the Pharisees fast? Do you know Jesus tells us in two places why the Pharisees fasted? Matthew chapter 6. Jesus says this in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, moreover, speaking to his disciples, when you fast... Be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear unto men to fast. Now what did they do? When they fasted twice a week, they made sure everyone knew. Why? Because they looked so sad. Because they made sure everyone knew, I am in a period of ritual fasting right now. Why? Because they wanted people to see. And Jesus said, verily I say unto you, they have their reward. They have no reward from God. Why? What reward were they looking for? They weren't looking for God's reward. They were looking for people's reward, people's good standing. And Jesus said, they got it. They have their reward. They have no reward from their Father which is in heaven. Why did they fast? So others saw. And why else did they fast? Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells the story of the two men who go to the temple. One a Pharisee, one a tax collector, a notorious open sinner. And do you remember when the, when the Pharisee goes to the temple, he stands upright in the temple and he, and, and, and he stands and he says, God, I am not like that guy over there. I do not sin like him. And what else did he say? Listen to this. I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. I'm a faster and I'm a tither. God, I thank you that I'm not like them. And do you know what Jesus says about this man? 
he left completely unjustified before God. He wasn't right with God. He thought he was. In other words, why did the Pharisees fast? They fasted to impress other people, and they fasted to impress God. That was the basis of their righteousness before God. That was the basis of their standing. God, look at all the good things I'm doing for you. I'm fasting, and I'm tithing, and I'm openly, publicly praying, and that is what you desire. It was an old ritual, and that was why they were doing it, impressing others and trying to impress God. Now, let me just pause here. Why were the disciples of John fasting? We actually don't know why the disciples of John were fasting, but what did John come preaching? Repentance. That's why. It was almost certainly they were expressing their repentance publicly in fasting or even privately in fasting. And so they were in the same boat, in a sense, as the Pharisees, though they may have been even more sincere than the Pharisees were. So notice this old ritual. This ritual is fasting to impress people and to try to impress God. And notice then they ask Jesus, your disciples don't fast. And notice Jesus is going to give three parables here that are going to describe why exactly Jesus' disciples were not fasting. Let's start with verse 19. And Jesus said unto them, Can the children of the bride chamber fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them, and then shall they fast in those days. The first new reality, if you're taking notes this morning, is this. The groom is here. That's the first new reality. The groom is here. Now, what's the picture that Jesus is drawing? He's speaking of a wedding feast. Now, we need to understand something about our cultural weddings. Our cultural wedding is a one-day affair, maybe even a less-than-one-day affair. We have a wedding. It might go anywhere from 15 minutes to an hour or whatever the length of it is. We might have a reception at which food is provided, and then we say goodbye to the bride and groom, and we all go home. That wasn't Jewish wedding culture. Jewish wedding culture involved a feast that was a week long. Now, I'm looking at some of you dads who have paid for your daughter's wedding, and just be grateful you didn't live in first century Judea, okay? You think that was expensive. Just imagine a week-long celebration and you were paying. Yikes. So a week-long celebration. Now what is Jesus saying? Notice again, notice the idea here. Imagine fasting during a week-long wedding celebration. What was fasting? It was connected to what? We just said. Mourning. Grief, I'm so sad, I'm so emotionally exercised. I mean, just imagine for a moment, you get a wedding invitation, and it's a summer wedding, and it's outdoors, and everyone's dressing in in bright colors, and you come all in black. And if you're a woman, you have no makeup on, and your eyes are puffy because you've been crying all day. And... The bride and the groom kiss, and everyone begins clapping, and you begin sobbing. I'm so sad. And then you go to the wedding reception, and they ask, do you want to come and be seated? And you say, no, I'm not going to eat anything. I haven't been able to eat all day. That would be an offense to everyone there. Well, 
maybe not to the bride's dad. That's maybe one less meal he has to pay for. But other than him, it doesn't make any sense. When you're at a wedding feast, you're there to celebrate. You're there to enjoy it. You're there to come into the other people's joy. And it doesn't make any sense for you to have a posture of mourning and grief. This is exactly what Jesus is saying. What's the picture? He's saying, I'm the groom. I'm the one who we are here to celebrate. And my disciples are celebrating because I'm here. Why would they be mourning and grieving and fasting? It doesn't make any sense. Now, this was an implicit rebuke to the Pharisees and to John's disciples. Jesus is saying to them, you shouldn't be fasting either. Why? Because the Messiah is here. The King is here. That's what we've been studying all throughout the book of Mark so far. The King is here. When the king comes, you celebrate. You enjoy the king. And now who, what are they doing? They're weeping. They're fasting. They're mourning. They're undertaking a posture of mourning. Jesus says, that's not for you. You should be celebrating me, and instead you're missing me. Now, that new reality was something that this old ritual could not have any part of. This old ritual could not coexist with. It was out of step with the reality that the king was there, the groom was there, and it was to be a time of celebration. But notice the second reality here that Jesus gives. Not just that the groom is here. The second reality is this. You need a new shirt. You need a new shirt. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, look with me at verse number 21. No man also sews a piece of new cloth on an old garment. Else the new piece that filled it up taketh away from the old, and the rent, the tear, is made worse. You say, what on earth is he talking about here? Okay, what happens if you were to go to the store and you were to buy a new woolen sweater, and you were to wear it a couple times, and it were to get dirty, and you were to drop it into the washing machine on super hot water, pull it out of the washing machine, throw it into the dryer on super hot temperatures, what's going to happen when the wool sweater comes out? You'll be lucky if it fits your dog or your cat. Right? We've all been there. Cotton shirt, wool sweater, whatever it is. Why? Because fabric naturally shrinks. When it gets wet and the fibers expand and relax, when it is met with heat, sometimes those fibers contract even more than it had been before, and the garment shrinks. We all knew, know this, and Jesus knew it back in that time. So what's he saying? Imagine that you have an, a shirt that's gotten really old and has gotten holes in it. And you say, I've got an idea. I've got such a, a, a connection to this shirt that I'm going to take just a, a different patch and I'm going to patch it up. And you patch it up. But the problem is that patch that you have has never been shrunk. It's completely new. It's straight out of the processor. What happens the first time you put it in the wash? That part, the new part's going to shrink. The old part's not going to shrink. And you're gonna, just going to tear it apart again. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. And it's something that any seamstress would know if you have ever worked with clothes. That's the picture. Now, what is Jesus saying? What is the analogy that he is making? If you've got an old shirt, 
don't look to me to patch it up. You're just going to have to get a new shirt. I want you to think about what the Pharisees would have heard this as. They would have heard it as this. The shirt, the religious shirt that you all have been wearing here has holes in it. It's old and it needs to be tossed in the trash. Jesus is saying, very frankly, I did not come to patch up your old shirt. I came to give you a new one. And do you know what this brings to mind? It brings to mind what the Hebrews said in Hebrews chapter 8. The Holy Spirit says this. In that he says a new covenant. What was God's promise for his Old Testament people? I'm not going to live with your old covenant. I'm going to give you a new covenant. And so the author of Hebrews says when God says a new covenant, he has made the first old. The Old Testament covenant, he says, is old. Now that which decays and waxes old, becomes old, is ready to vanish away. What he is saying is the old covenant that is old when God brought his new one in. He said that's ready to be tossed in the trash. It's ready to vanish away. It's ready to depart like an old shirt with holes in it. And here these Pharisees are so proudly clinging to their old shirt. They're so proudly clinging to their empty old rituals that were departed from God's purpose from them in the first place. And Jesus says, I didn't come to patch up your holy shirt. I didn't come to patch up your old garment. I came to give you a new one. Now, isn't it a wonderful thing that throughout the Bible, our clothes are presented as a symbol of the righteousness that we have before God? Listen to what Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 61. He says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Whose righteousness? The righteousness that I work for, that I strive for like that person in the temple saying, God, I thank you that I'm not like that guy. I fast twice in the week and I give tithes. God, this is my righteousness. This is my righteous clothing before you. And Jesus looks at him and says, that shirt has holes in it. It's dirty. It's old. It's not going to get you anywhere. You need a new one. What kind of robe? What kind of clothing? A garment of salvation from me. A garment of righteousness from me. You see, what is Jesus' purpose? He didn't come to patch up your system of works righteousness and of ritual that you think is impressing God. He came to give you a new system entirely. And I say this to you as soberly and as seriously as I can this morning, my friends. You may have grown up in a Christian home. You may have grown up in a Christian family. And you have lived your life thinking that Jesus is just patching up the holes in your shirt. Your standing before God in your mind is how well you perform. How much you read your Bible this week. How good a job you did in doing things, in coming to church. You are like the Pharisee in the temple saying, God, look at everything I've done this week. Look at what a good job I did. Aren't you impressed? 
And Jesus says, I didn't come to patch up that shirt of your own righteousness. I came to give you a new one. I'm paraphrasing Charles Spurgeon who said, if there is a one stitch of your own righteousness in your garment that stands before God, you've missed the entire point. And friends, I'm telling you as soberly as I know how on the basis of the word of God, if you are standing before God like that Pharisee trusting in your own righteousness, you are not born again. Jesus will not come in to patch up your garment of your righteousness. He will only come to give you a new one. And as long as you and I are thinking that Jesus is just a patch for me doing my best and trying my hardest on my own, you do not know grace and you do not know salvation that comes in Jesus Christ. There is only one garment of righteousness. There is only one robe of salvation that he came to give. And it was the robe that he himself sewed on the cross when he took all of your sin and all of your failures and all of your attempts to please him. And he paid the penalty for them himself. And now he is resurrected to offer you his perfect life, his perfect righteousness as a garment to cover all of your sin and all of your failure and all of your efforts that so often come up short. There is nothing else that we can stand on for our salvation. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Are you trusting only in Jesus this morning? Are you trusting only in what he did for you on the cross? He will not patch up your best efforts. He came to give you a new clothing entirely. The first reality, the groom is here. The second reality, you and I need a new shirt, and so did those Pharisees. And what is the third reality? You need a new container. You need a new container. Look with me at verse number 22. And no man puts new wine into old bottles. The idea of bottles here is not like a bottle, a plastic bottle, a glass bottle. That's not what he's saying. The idea here is of a wineskin. Okay, what is a wineskin? A wineskin was made of leather. And you would take a goat or a sheep that had been killed and you would take its hide and you would tan it, you would treat it, and then you would sew up the holes. You might sew up the, ar- the arm and leg holes. You might use the throat as a spout or of some kind. And that would become what you would hold your wine in, the fruit of the vine. You, this would be your liquid container. So keep that in mind. No man putteth new wine. What's new wine? That's grape juice that is new. It's just been pressed. It's fresh grape juice. You don't put new wine into old bottles, old wineskins. Else, otherwise, the new wine doth burst the bottles, the wineskins, and the wine is spilled and the bottles will be marred. They'll be ruined. But new wine must be put into new bottles, new wineskins. You say, what's the idea? Well, what happened the moment you began pressing out grape juice from grapes, getting fresh grape juice. Was there any such thing as refrigeration in Jesus' day? No. What happens to grape juice when it's not refrigerated? 
it immediately ferments. It immediately becomes fermenting. It, it enters the process. We sometimes forget that when people pressed out grape juice in Bible times, it immediately entered the process of becoming fermented wine. That was just what happened. They didn't have any other way around it. So imagine for a moment that you have freshly squeezed grape juice and you put it into a container, into a wineskin of leather. It's immediately going to start fermenting. What happens when it starts fermenting? I'm not going to give you a treatise on the process of fermentation other than to say it starts releasing gases. That's what happens. Now imagine if you had a soda can, right? If this were a can of Coke and I started shaking it, what would happen the moment I... I opened the cap, pressure would be built up and the pressure would release. Well, now imagine wine that has gases being entered into a sealed container. What does the container need? It needs a little bit of elasticity. It can't be old and brittle or what's going to happen as the gases accumulate and the pressure builds? What's going to happen to the wineskin? It's going to burst and you're going to lose the wine and you're going to lose the container. That's the picture that Jesus is giving, and everyone would have gotten it. Oh, I get what he's saying. You can't have an old, brittle wineskin that has been used over and over. You need a new one that is still supple, that is still flexible, that is elastic, or more elastic than an old, brittle one. Okay, that's the picture. Now, again, where are we? Jesus is saying this to the Pharisees. Your practice of fasting of ritual fasting disconnected from the Old Testament idea behind it is like an old, brittle wineskin. In fact, this is symbolic of your entire way of approaching to God. You are like a brittle wineskin without any elasticity or flexibility at all. And here's what he's saying. I am the new wine. I am the freshly squeezed grape juice that came for you. And I am providing this to you. You say, what's the analogy there? Well, I think of Psalm 104 in the Old Testament that speaks of wine that makes glad the heart of man. The picture of a new wine is of something life-giving, of something fresh, of something bringing joy and gladness. It is something of celebration. It is life. Jesus said, that's what I came to give. And he said, here's the problem. If you have a container that is based on old, empty ritualism and works righteousness before God, you can't hold my new wine. You can't hold my life that I came to give you. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things old wineskins, old rituals, empty formalism is passed away. Behold, all things are become new. New. Jesus says, I am the new wine. And if you want to experience my life, you better have a new wineskin because I'm not going to get poured in to empty, to old ritual to old formalism, to old works righteousness. Now, let's be very clear about this. Who is the one who gives us in our daily experience the new wine, the life of Christ, the power of Christ, the energy of Christ, the love of Christ? He is the Holy Spirit. 
The Holy Spirit is the one who came to bring the life of Christ to you. And if you're a Christian this morning, the Holy Spirit is indwelling you. You have new wine. You have the life of Christ. You have the joy of Christ. You have the energy of Christ, the power of Christ in you. But here's the problem. When you and I try to live out the life of the Holy Spirit, the new wine, in our empty, our brittle bottles, our brittle wineskins of ritual and formalism and traditionalism, you can't do it. It's going to break. Jesus came to give you a new wineskin. Now, what is he trying to say there? Again, What was the picture of the Pharisee? Was the Pharisee fasting as God intended it to be from the Old Testament onward in expression of our broken heart of repentance or our intense desire in prayer? No, they were just doing it because they had to, because they felt they should do it, because others would be impressed if they did it. And Jesus says, I will not pour my new wine into that old bottle. I'm not going to do it. And friends, I wonder how many of us today are trying to live in the power of the new wine that Jesus came to give us in the old brittle bottles of our own ritual, trying to impress others and trying to impress God. How many habits do we have in our life that if we were to honestly look in the mirror with the help of the Holy Spirit, we would say, I'm just like the Pharisees fasting twice a week. I'm not doing it out of, the, out of new wine. I'm doing it out of ritual. I'm doing it like eating lutefisk every Christmas Eve because we always have, because we should. Take our Bible readings. It's a wonderful thing that we read the Bible every day. We should read the Bible every day. God has spread out a feast for us every single day and says, come and eat. I want to feed you spiritually from my word. Shame on us if we are not taking that reality and saying, yes, I'd like to eat every day, if not multiple times a day. But you know, friends, some of us may be reading the Bible. I know I have only because I should. Only because my parents taught me to. Only because I'm worried that I might not have a good day unless I do. And what I want to ask you as I ask myself is this. Do you think God is impressed? Any more than he was impressed with those Pharisees fasting two times a week and saying, God, look at me, look at what a good job I'm doing. No, he's not. And when you and I approach our spiritual life with with those old brittle wineskins, we are not going to experience the new wine that he came to give us. We're not going to experience the power of the Holy Spirit. We're not going to experience the life and the energy and the internal fulfillment and satisfaction that he came to provide. Now, there's a very good example of this in a phrase we skipped over so far. Go back to verse 20. Jesus says, but the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them. Who's the bridegroom? Jesus. Was the bridegroom taken away from his disciples? 
Yes, he was. He was killed on the cross, and then ultimately he ascended up to heaven. And then shall they fast in those days. Jesus is not saying, don't fast, Christian. What's he saying? When they are mourning and grieving and weeping over me, then they'll fast. We see fasting in the New Testament, when, in the New Testament church, when they were praying, some of them were fasting because they were intentionally desiring God to do something. God is not ruling out fasting. Fasting can be wonderful for your spiritual life. If your internals are on the same page, God, I'm repenting over sin, and I'm so serious about my repentance over sin, I'm not going to eat anything because I can't even think about food right now. I'm so broken over my sin. God, forgive me. Yeah, that's a great time to fast. You know what's another great time to fast? Oh, God, you need to do something in my family. You need to do something in my life. You need to do something in my church. And I'm so intensely feeling it, I don't even feel like eating. God, I'm fasting right now. That's a great time to fast. But not as an empty ritual. Not as an old, brittle wineskin. And you know, we friends, we could go up and down the list. Church on Sunday morning can be an empty ritual. Memorizing God's word can be an empty ritual. All of these practices that we so often go to just because they're comfortable, just because we should, just because we were taught to do it. And what we don't realize is when that empty wineskin, when that old brittle wineskin is a means of impressing others and a means of trying to impress God, Jesus is saying to us, you're not going to experience my life. You need a new wineskin for that. You need a new container. What kind of container? It's the container that the Holy Spirit came to give you. The Holy Spirit came to change your inner attitudes and your desires and your motivations so that your external actions would flow from them. He came so that you read the Bible because you come that morning saying, God, by faith, I'm ready to feast. I want to come to you this morning. God, I'm getting down on my knees and praying this morning, not just because I should, but because I need to get a hold of you today. I need some things from you. You see, it is internal change that reflects itself in external action. And if we're Pharisees, if we're legalists, we are simply never going to experience the new wine the new power, the new life, the new energy that Jesus came to provide. Friends, I think a lesson for us this morning is that by faith and by depending on the Holy Spirit of God, we must pursue the internal attitudes and the internal motivations that will flow outward, that will express themselves in the external behaviors that are so central to our spiritual lives. Yes, read the Bible. Yes, fast. Yes, come to church. Yes, have a regular prayer time. Yes, memorize and meditate on God's word. Yes, go out on evangelism in this city. Yes, seek to bring the gospel to other people. But make sure that it is motivated by the new wine of Jesus Christ that is motivated by his energy and his life that the Holy Spirit gives. Otherwise, what's going to happen? You're not going to have Christ. You're not going to hear, experience his power and his life. And someday, you're going to look back and you're going to say, why were we eating lutefisk again? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the new life that Jesus came to give us. 
Thank you that he didn't come to patch up our own righteousness. He came to give us a new righteousness. Thank you that he didn't come to pour out his life into our empty religion, our brittle wineskins of ritual and tradition and formalism. He came to give us a new wineskin. And oh, Father, I pray we have such a need here because it's so comfortable to live in ritual. It's so comfortable to live in tradition. It's so comfortable to live trying to impress you. And yet, we, if we are to understand grace, we are to understand that we have nothing without you. That we need you every hour. That our salvation is only in the righteousness of Jesus Christ and none of our own.